0: Good morning. Welcome again to King's Cross. Holiday weekends are fun because you have a lot of people who aren't here, and then you have some people who are here who you don't get to see every week, and it's sweet to be with you all this morning. Uh, We're in Genesis 1 this morning. No, rather, we're in Genesis 3, a couple chapters after Genesis 1. Uh, We're getting in this week to a new sermon series that will take us the next five weeks. Now, if you know me really well, you know that about this time of year I will start to make my opinions known on when the proper time is to begin celebrating Christmas, listening to Christmas music. Uh, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon, or at least I'm perceived that way, because I think that we should wait until Advent to, to start observing the Christmas festivities. But every so often there comes a year where Advent does not come on the first Sunday after Thanksgiving and you have this like nine day gap. And I will just say, I will grant permission if you would like to start listening to Christmas music, uh, you may do so now. We put up our Christmas tree last night. Uh, And in light of that, we're actually beginning what we would call our Advent Sermon Series, a week early. Uh, And the reason is is really, frankly, because we came to a good stopping point in Galatians and there's five sermons that I wanna preach over the next five weeks on this same theme. So next week, we'll get into sort of observing Advent properly, but this morning, we'll begin this series that will take us through Christmas time. And the, the series we're calling God Comes to Us. What is Christmas about? What is the Bible about? What is human history about? It's about God coming to us. It's about human beings created in God's image, turning their backs on him, rejecting him, rebelling against him, and yet he, in his love and mercy and grace, pursuing us, coming after us, saving us. And the greatest picture of that is of course at Christmas when God actually comes to us in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. But throughout the Bible, we see all these little advents, all these little comings of God to his people that are all pointing forward to the biggest one in Christ. And in particular, I've been struck through the years in reading the book of Genesis and seeing all these examples of God appearing to his people in his love and in his grace and in his mercy. So for the next five weeks, we're going to look at five stories from the book of Genesis where God comes to his people in one way or another. This morning, Genesis 3, we'll see that God comes to us in our shame. I'll read this uh, beginning in in chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 21. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, no. "'You will will certainly not die,' the serpent said to the woman. "'In fact, God knows that when you eat it, "'your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, "'knowing good and evil.' "'And the woman saw that the tree was good for food "'and delightful to look at, "'and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. "'So she took some of its fruit and ate it, "'and also gave some to her husband who was with her, "'and he ate it. "'Then the eyes of both of them were opened, "'and they knew they were naked.' So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our typical approach to preaching here is to work our way through a book of the Bible one section at a time. And for the next five weeks, we're going to be jumping around Genesis. And whenever we do that, it's just important to get some context because we're not preaching through the whole story. So, to understand Genesis 3, we do need to get a sense of what's going on in the two chapters that precede it Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, God creates the world. In six days, by the word of his mouth, he creates the world. And every day, he looks at what he's created and he says, It is good, it is good. It is good. And he comes to the sixth day, and his crowning glory of his creation is human beings, unique among everything that he's made. We are the only thing made in his image. And for the first time, God stops, and he looks, and he says, it is very good. And on the seventh day, he rests just to take in and enjoy the beauty and the glory of what he has created. Genesis 1 gives us the sort of 30,000-foot view of creation. Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of humanity specifically. We see that God creates the first man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathes the breath of life into him. He puts him in this beautiful, lush garden, and he gives him a commission. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my image, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. He gives Adam this commission to tend, for, tend to and care for the garden. And in this beautiful garden, among many, many other things, there's two very special trees. One of them is called the tree of life. And it's the tree that would sustain Adam, not, not physically, But spiritually, it would nourish him such that however long he had access to that tree, he would be able to go on living forever and ever. But there was another tree in the garden, the only one that Adam was not to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told Adam, if you eat from that tree, you will die. God gives Adam a helper in Genesis 2 to help accomplish his mission. Adam looks around at all the animals God's created, and he sees, I can't accomplish this commission that you've given me on my own. And so God causes a deep sleep to come over Adam, and out of Adam's side, he forms a woman. And when Adam wakes up and sees her, he says, At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He sees that, that, yes, she is different than me in some ways, but essentially at her core, this one is like me. She is fit for me in a way that nothing else is. And together, they are able to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with God's image. Everything is good. Everything is beautiful. And importantly, chapter 2, verse 25 tells us both the man and his wife were naked, and yet they felt no shame. Of course, this scene doesn't last long. And in chapter 3, verse 1, as we saw, this crafty, talking serpent slithers onto the scene or maybe walks onto the scene uh, And asks, did God really say? A couple things to notice here. First, is the serpent an animal? Yes, he is, right? It's not a trick question, even though he talks. He is an animal. And did God tell humanity to rule over the animals? Yes, he did. So the second this serpent comes in and starts questioning God's word, he should have been thrown out of the garden. If Adam and Eve were doing their job, they would not have entertained a word that he said, But look what happens instead. He asks, did God really say? Did God really say? The serpent here is not just trying to usurp the authority of humanity. He's trying to usurp the authority of God by questioning what God said. Not only that, he's trying to draw into question the goodness of God. Let's work through this and see how it plays out. What does the serpent ask? He says, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, he knows that God didn't say that. Right, They can eat from every tree in the garden except one. What's he doing? He's trying to maximize the sense of prohibition. God gave one single solitary negative command. You can't eat from that tree. And Satan, the devil in the serpent, comes onto the scene and he says, did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees? It's incredibly stingy of him. The woman responds and she says, well, no, we can eat from all these trees. But then she says, we can't eat from the one in the middle of the garden, nor can we touch it. Okay, if you're reading carefully, you should hear the record screeching to a halt when she says that because where did God say you can't touch it? That's not in the text. God did not say that. You can see that ever so subtly, even by just a little bit, the mindset that the serpent is trying to sow in the woman has already taken hold, right? Even if by one command she starts to add to the prohibition, she starts to to believe the sense that God is this miserly Scrooge who rather than wanting to abundantly bless, wants to keep them from something. And once Satan sees that he sowed this seed of doubt, now comes the full frontal assault. You will not die. God's lying to you, he says. God's lying to you. He's not telling you the truth. And why is he lying to you? Because God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. God, Satan says, is holding out on you. He's trying to keep you from some good thing because he doesn't want you to live your fullest and best life. And the only way that you can live your fullest and best life, in fact, is if you transgress his law and reach out and grasp the fruit in your own power. Satan is trying to warp Adam and Eve's view of God, and they buy in already before they even eat the fruit. Before they even eat the fruit, their desires have been twisted, their pride has been encouraged, and they join the serpent in his rebellion against God. And what happens? Do they become like God, as the serpent said? The tragic irony is that, as God's image bears, they were already like God. They were more like God than anything else in creation. But by reaching out and grasping and trying to be more than they were, trying to become gods actually in themselves, they become much less. St. Augustine says of this passage that whoever seeks to be more than he is, becomes less than he is. Whenever he aspires to be self-sufficing, he retreats from the one who is truly sufficient for him. What really happens is the people become much less than they were. And we read in verse 7 that their eyes were open. What does this mean? Does it mean they could all, all of a sudden see something physically that they weren't able to see before? No, that's not what's going on here. What, what really is being described is that their, their eyes moved. They moved their focus from one thing to another. Origen, a church father commenting on this passage, says that up to that point, they had enjoyed the delight of beholding God and his paradise. Before they reached for the fruit and took the fruit and ate it, their eyes and their hearts and their minds were fixed on God and his beauty and his glory and all of his perfections and the beauty of this world that he had created. But now their eyes moved to themselves. They take their focus off God, and they turn their focus on themselves. And what do they see? They see that they're naked. Nakedness in the Bible is a really powerful metaphor for shame, all the way throughout the biblical story. And it makes perfect sense, right? Like the the feeling of being exposed in front of people, of of feeling like people can see into the, the most intimate part of yourself, feeling like everybody's just reading right through to your soul, preying on your fears and your anxieties... Sin in the garden immediately leads to shame, and it still does. It still does today. As an aside, uh, this is actually not a bad thing. We are taught to believe that, that any negative feelings like shame are really, really bad, and we should do whatever we can to try to prevent those feelings. But the feeling of shame after you sin is not a bad thing any more than it's bad to feel pain after you touch a hot frying pan on the stove. It's your body telling you, don't touch that again. That's not good for you. The sense of shame after sin is your soul telling you, that's not good for you. You've turned away from the life that God has called you to live. What is bad is not to feel shame after we sin. What is bad is that when our consciences become so seared, we can't actually feel shame anymore. The question is not whether we will feel shame or whether that's a bad thing. It's what we do with our shame. The rest of the sermon I want to look at the human response to sin and shame, and then the divine response to sin and shame. What do Adam and Eve do with their shame? Three things that we see here. First, they work to cover it up. They make clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. They go and get some leaves and they try to sew them together and make outfits for themselves. We should just pause and note that that's a really embarrassingly weak attempt to cover yourselves. Fig leaves would not make good clothes. Uh, When I was 9 or 10 years old i was starting to play golf and if if anybody's ever gotten into golf people say that you get the bug like at some point you just want to be out there from sun up until sundown and this happened to me when i was about 9 or 10 years old and i got so into it that i would bring try to bring golf clubs inside the house and practice my swing in in the house. And my parents understandably said, it's not a good idea to practice your golf swing in the house. Those need to stay in the garage or outside. One day, I was home with my older sister, and my parents weren't out. And it was a perfect time to get a few practice swings in in the kitchen next to this uh, sort of wooden, built-in China cabinet situation in in our kitchen. And the story's not actually as bad as as you may think it's going to go. The china uh, is still in one piece, but the cabinet does now have a really nasty gash in it all these years later. And as soon as I took that swing and felt the club hit the cabinet, I was mortified. So what did I do? As a 9 or 10-year-old, I was pretty frugal, so I'd been saving up my allowance for a while. I think I had like $107. And I went downstairs, and I got all the cash that I could find, my $107, and I left a note on the cabinet, a little post-it note for my parents, and said, I'm so sorry I disobeyed. I will pay for this. It may take me a long time to make enough money to pay for it, but here's $107. I tried my best to cover my shame by working hard and promising that I would work hard and make the effort to pay it back. I was never going to be able to pay to fix that cabinet. And my parents, to their credit, uh, were not nearly as concerned about it as I was. I don't think they ever fixed it. All of our efforts to cover our shame are embarrassingly ineffective. They don't work. But to top it off, they usually make matters worse. I'm reminded of another story in scripture, probably the most famous cover-up story, David and Bathsheba. David sends against Bathsheba and against her husband and against God and he takes her and sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant and when he realizes this to cover it up he says we need to have her husband Uriah who's out fighting in the military come back home and arrange a little rendezvous between them so that I can get off scot-free here and when he sets up to do it Uriah is a man of such character that he says I'm gonna sleep outside my house how can I how can I sleep with my wife when all my brothers are out there fighting? And so it doesn't work. And so the next night, David says, well, maybe if I get him really drunk, it'll work. And again, it doesn't work. And so the next day, Uriah goes back to the field, and David still needs to cover things up. And so he sends a message with Uriah to his commander It says, put Uriah on the front lines. And he has him killed. And as you read the story, things get worse and worse and worse because of David's efforts to cover up his sin. Our efforts to cover our shame are not only embarrassingly ineffective, they inevitably make matters worse. The second thing that Adam and Eve do after they work to cover it up is they hide. Look at verse 8. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. The Lord's footsteps in the garden, which should have provoked the excitement of a shameless child running up to a loving father coming home from work now invoke terror and fear. In their sin and shame, instead of running to dad, they now go hide among the trees. The third thing they do is they blame. Whose fault is it? God comes to Adam Who told you you're naked? You know, what, what happened? And Adam just immediately points the finger to Eve. But what does he say? He says, the woman that you gave to me gave me the fruit. She made me do it. So God plays along. Eve, what have you done? Well, the serpent made me do it. Both of them are immediately blaming others. But who are they really blaming? They're really blaming God. I mean, Adam's bold enough to say it. The woman that you gave to me, God. Eve is more implicit. The serpent that you created made me do it. Three responses to shame, work, hide, and blame. And don't we do the same thing? Isn't isn't so much of our effort in life, our career ladder climbing, our moralism, our religion, our political posturing, isn't so much of it about trying to cover up that sense of shame? Isn't so much of our makeup applying in the fictional life that we portray on social media just about hiding who we really are because we're terrified that if somebody really knew us, if they really saw inside of us, if they, if they really knew who we really are, they wouldn't love us anymore. Yeah. Aren't we so quick to point the finger at, at others when we sin or fall short? And not just at other people, right? But at our situation, at our circumstances. God, I know I'm envious of that other person, but maybe if you would give me a spouse and some kids, I wouldn't be envious anymore. God, I know that I've been complaining a lot, but if I could just be healthier for a little while. God, I know that that I gripe and complain and I'm jealous of other people, but if you would just give me a little bit more money to have a little bit of a nicer house, then I wouldn't complain and be envious anymore. We point the finger at our family of origin. I know I have a short temper with my kids, but I'm doing better than my family did. I know that I'm envious, that I'm jealous, that I'm angry, that I'm lustful, but you should see the situation that I came from. We point the finger at our our constitution, right? Just our general makeup. Like, I know I'm quick to blow up at people. I, I, I know, you know, I have this problem and that problem, but it's just the way that I was made. It's just my wiring. People need to deal with my wiring. In all of these things, all the things that we point the finger at, aren't we really saying, God, this is your fault. I'm sinning because of all these circumstances, all these situations, all these other people, but God is the one who brought those things into our lives. Aren't we really blaming him? God's response to the sin of Adam and Eve is totally unexpected, and it's on a completely different plane than their response. What does he do? First, he searches for them. He comes to them. He pursues them. He comes looking for them. He calls to them. Verse 9, where are you? My three-year-old likes to play hide-and-seek with me right now. She's not very good at hide-and-seek. She doesn't totally understand the rules. So she will often tell me, Daddy, I'm going to go hide over there. And you count to 10 and then come find me. Or she'll tell me where I should hide so that she could come find me. So when I'm playing with her and when I say, ready or not, here I come, I'm not really looking for her. I know where she is already. Similarly, although this is not a game, when God asks, where are you, he knows where Adam and Eve are. He's not asking about their geographical location. God knows everything. Ambrose, who was the pastor of Augustine, is commenting on this passage. He says, what does God mean when he says, Adam, where are you? Doesn't he mean in what circumstance are you and not in what place are you? It's not a question, but a reproof. From what condition of goodness and happiness and grace, he says, have you fallen into this state of misery? You have forsaken eternal life. You have entombed yourself in the ways of sin and death. Where are you, Adam? What happened? Where are you? God's giving Adam by this question a chance to repent. Some people have speculated. I don't think I believe it, but it's interesting speculation that if at this point Adam had come out and repented of the whole thing, maybe he would have been able to stay in the garden. But does he repent? No, he doesn't. He says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Well, God gives him another chance to repent. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat from? Adam could have said, yes, God, I did. You already know this. You see this embarrassing cover up. You're not fooled by me wearing fig leaves? But instead, he then blames his wife. So God gives Eve a chance to repent. What have you done? Points to the serpent. Can we just stop and appreciate for a moment God's response and God's initiative? No rage, no cold shoulder, no silent treatment, no guilt trip. He doesn't sit back and say, this is your problem, you can fix it. He doesn't wait until they come groveling to him. He doesn't say, once they've apologized sufficiently for what they've done, then I'll think about reconciling with them. No, he pursues. He seeks them out. He searches for them. He comes and comes looking for them. God comes to them in their shame, but he does dole out consequences. God is just And God said that there would be consequences if they ate this fruit, and so there must be consequences. Adam and Eve transgressed the one prohibitive command in a world of abundance, the one no in a garden full of yeses. And how great is their sin given how easy it should have been for them to obey the one command. They had everything they could have wanted. They walked with God in the cool of the day, and yet they still turned from him. But even more fundamentally than breaking a rule, their hearts had turned away from God. Their desires had fallen away. They had turned themselves and all of creation inside out by turning away from the one true source of life. And when you turn away from life, you're turning toward death. If you stop drinking water, you're eventually going to die. If you stop drinking from the fountain of life, you're going to die. What are their consequences? Well, their calling, their commission becomes difficult. They've been told to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, right? And their multiplying becomes difficult. Labor becomes painful and their, their labor, their physical labor, their toil becomes difficult. The world is no longer going to cooperate with them. They're cast out of the garden. They're barred from the tree of life. They're barred from the intimate presence of God and they're going to die. They're gonna to return to dust, God says. But look at the third thing that God does. Verse 21, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. God covered them. They're sitting there, ashamed, embarrassed in their nakedness. They've made these pitiful clothes for themselves, and God says, let me give you a better covering. Let me take the attention off of your shame. I was reminded last night, thinking about this Sermon of another story in the Bible, a famous story that involves Jesus and an adulterous woman. Some Pharisees find this woman, presumably in the act of adultery. It seems like, if you if you read between the lines, that they have they know this has been going on, and they find a time to trap her in the act, and they bring her before Jesus. Now. Never mind the fact that, like, where is the man with whom she's committing adultery? They only bring out the woman, and they throw her before Jesus, presumably in a physical state not much different than that of Adam and Eve, scantily covered. And they tell Jesus, the law says we should stone her to death. What do you think we should do? And before Jesus gives his famous, let he who is without sin throw the first stone line, he stoops down on the ground, and he starts drawing in the dust with his finger. And nobody knows what he's doing. Nobody knows what he's writing. Nobody knows what he's drawing, if he's drawing something. People have speculated. But one speculation I heard that has just always stuck with me is the idea that in bending down and stooping and writing in the dust, Jesus' first action is to simply take their eyes off of the woman. She's sitting there in her shame, and he distracts them. In a sense, he provides a covering for her. What's going on here? Very practically, God is giving them a clothing that's better than the one that they could make for themselves. What they could not do in their own ability, cover their shame, God did for them. But there's more going on here than that because where did the skins come from? They came from animals. And unless there's a skinless animal or two now walking around the Garden of Eden, presumably those animals had to die, they had to be killed. God told Adam and Eve that they would die the day that they ate from the tree. And in one sense, they did. Spiritually, they died. Their relationship with God was broken. Their relationship with one another was broken. Their relationship with the earth was broken. But in another sense, their death was delayed. Physically, they did not die the day that they ate from the tree. But something did. Something had to die because God said that that was the punishment. What's going on here? This is a substitute. This is a sacrifice. It's the first substitutionary sacrifice in a Bible full of substitutionary sacrifices. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system is pointed to here. God would give laws and he would say, this is what to sacrifice. This is what to do when you commit this kind of sin. And every so often on this day in the calendar, you need to commit these sacrifices so that your sin can be atoned for, so that it can be forgiven. The book of Hebrews sums this up and says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. God himself is making the first substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of his people to cover not only their shame, but their sin. You have brought this on yourselves. He says, you have sinned. You have messed this whole thing up. But wait right there. I'm going to go and do something about it. I am going to go and fix it. Of course, Hebrews says something else too. It says that the animal blood in the Old Testament system was never actually able to forgive anyone. Why? Because it wasn't animals that sinned. (laughs) They weren't guilty. Humans sinned. And so for there to be true forgiveness, there needed to be a perfect and fitting sacrifice. What Hebrews tells us is that throughout the entire Old Testament system and all those animal sacrifices, God is overlooking sin until the time that a perfect and fitting sacrifice should appear. And this, of course, points us So one more thing that God does here that I skipped over. He makes a promise. God comes to them, he gives them consequences, he covers them, and he makes a promise to them. Look at verse 14. Many people call this the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. God here is preaching the first gospel-centered sermon. He says to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock. In verse 15 he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What's God saying? He's making a promise. And note, he's making a promise before he even lists the consequences. Before he even stops to tell Adam and Eve what their consequences are going to be for their sin, he says, I'm going to fix all this. You blew it. You messed this thing up royally. But I have a plan. I'm going to fix it. The one who tempted you and all of his offspring are going to be crushed. There's going to come an offspring from the woman God promises, who, by the way, Adam, at the end of this, names Eve, the mother of all the living. What a a perfect picture of his belief in the promise of God. Eve, she is going to have a great, 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 great grandson, and he, serpent, is going to crush your head, but not before you strike his heel. Who is it? Of course, it's Jesus. Jesus. When God comes to us ultimately, fully, finally, it is not merely to sacrifice an animal and make coverings for our body. It is to sacrifice himself and make coverings for our soul. First, this one comes to us as a baby. He's born to a woman, a woman who actually obeys God and succeeds exactly where Eve failed. St. Irenaeus early church father says, the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. What Eve had bound fast through unbelief, Mary set free through faith. For just as Eve was led astray by the word of a fallen angel, so did Mary, by the word of an angel, receive the glad tidings that she should give birth to the God-man, and she was obedient to his word. And the one that Mary gave birth to would be tempted by Satan, just like Adam and Eve were, Satan would attack him. Satan would enter into one of his disciples who would betray him, who would hand him over. He would be unjustly arrested and crucified by godless men. But all of this was according to God's eternal plan. God already had it in mind in Genesis 3. And the great irony, of course, is that the striking of Christ's heel by Satan was the very means by which Christ crushed his head. For it was on the cross that Jesus became the perfect sacrifice for our sin and the perfect covering for our shame. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. God has come to us. God has come to us in Jesus Christ. Christian, God has come to you by no good deed of your own. Maybe he's coming to you this morning. Maybe he's knocking at the door this morning. If so, I hope that you'll let him in.